I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul warns these new apprentices of Jesus against giving the devil a foothold in their lives. After weeks of building out a more nuanced and complex way of understanding evil in the supernatural realm, how can we learn to put our fight against the devil into day-to-day practice? not giving him a foothold. Now, for several weeks, we've been working our way through a teaching series and a set of practices in our uh, small groups, what we call Van City Communities, that are all designed to equip disciples of Jesus um, in their fight against what spiritual formation writers call the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the bulk of the work thus far has been an ongoing conversation around the primary antagonist of the Bible story, which is an entity called the devil. And we'll conclude that aspect of this series tonight, and we'll begin with the flesh next Sunday. Now, if you're just joining us um, or you've missed Sunday or two along the way, please go back and catch up on the podcast. I honestly believe this conversation is one of massive importance for every disciple of Jesus and really for our church family in particular. If you have a question um, that hasn't been addressed yet in the series, has been kind of rattling in your brain, go ahead and take a quick photo of that slide or jot down the number. You have my permission to use your phone for it. Not that you need my permission specifically, but I won't get upset about it for the next 30 seconds or less. Um, we're going to uh, be releasing a Q&A podcast in the next few weeks that will hopefully address some of the questions that you guys have. Um, <clears throat> go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Bible on the dinner table, food, it's fine. It's great, actually. Uh, the 1980s were, among many other things, marked by a kind of paranoid moral hysteria amongst evangelical Christians. So much so, actually, that the period has an unofficial title, and that is the Satanic Panic. And it didn't come out of nowhere. The Manson family murders had shocked America in 1969, um, which was actually the same year that Anton LaVey published the infamous Satanic Bible. Um, This was uh, followed quickly by William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, which was published in 71, I believe, and the film adaptation that followed in 73 became a full-fledged pop culture phenomenon that is responsible for for converting many to Christianity or back to Christianity. Um, The devil and the mysterious occult were garnering more public attention than ever before, and by the time the 70s gave way to the 80s, Um, Christians had begun to see the devil behind every bush and in every shadow. And I am a grateful child of the 1980s. I grew up in an already conservative southeast Georgia uh, in a largely fundamentalist Southern Baptist context. Um, But my parents were kind of uh, an anomaly. They were more open-minded than many. My dad loved ACDC and Queen. Um, My mom was really into like Louisa May Alcott and Sylvia Plath and classic literature. Um, And even so, even though our parents were fairly open-minded, we were not safe from the satanic panic. Uh, My earliest memories, I tried to think what my first exposure to it was, and it had to be this. Look! 
great. Watch what happens immediately. Ah! <laughs> uh, if you don't recognize it, and that was, by the way, the highest resolution video I could find on the internet, um, that is the opening of the Dungeons & Dragons Saturday morning cartoon, which my brother and I were way enthusiastic about, but my parents learned from church the following Sunday um, that this was step one in handing over your children to the devil. So we were no longer allowed to watch this uh, Dungeons and Dragons Saturday morning cartoon. And it didn't end there. Um, as a teenager, my youth pastor actually sat my brother and I down to endure what was, I think, several VHS copies long, um, uh, an eye-opening, <laughs> grueling expose on the dangerous path on which we had both embarked. Here's a clip from that. Simply want to look at rock music from the perspective of truth as defined by both the scriptures and the person of Jesus Christ. The biblical picture of man without God is much like this poor fellow right here. <laughs> He's in critical condition, suffering from a sinful, wicked heart that has separated him from God. As a means of systematically and objectively examining rock music for signs of the devil's influence, we'll look at this book, The Satanic Bible. Virtually dozens of groups openly sing about wickedness that until recently could not be found outside of occult bookstores. If all these people mean well, or are just trying to have a good time, they and their fans can't be considered followers of Satan, can they? Shrill sounds of sufficient volume can congeal proteins in the liquid media. <laughs> I stopped it there, but he goes on to hold like an egg up to a speaker and claims that it's been hard-boiled. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> We watched that thing from uh, like how many, it was like three VHS copies long. We were like, oh my gosh, we get it. Jeez, I don't even have a Slayer record or whatever it was. Now, uh, <laughs> then I was, so I, as I was going through and doing research on this and thinking about this period of, of moral panic, I was having a conversation with uh, my wife, Abby, who was born in 89, so she almost missed the 80s. And her memory of uh, the satanic panic brought up uh, this video, which is about the horrifying dangers of the fall season. And I'm Carol Matriciana. Welcome to this edition of The Pagan Invasion. <laughs> Halloween is a festival that conjures up images of ghosts, skeletons, black cats, witches on broomsticks, and little costumed children scurrying about the neighborhood. One of the biggest promoters of Halloween is the public school system. School-sponsored Halloween-themed activities often include dances, costume contests, carnivals, and arts and crafts projects. Education officials admit that more effort is usually put into the celebration of Halloween than any other holiday, including Christmas and Easter. Whether the public chooses to believe in the frightening growth of Satanism or not, the fact is that a highly organized network of Satanists are operating in America and Europe today. <laughs> now that's funny, mostly because it's so dated and some of it seems ridiculous. And maybe a few of you can relate to that in some way. Others of you, I'm sure, are thinking this is bananas and you're not entirely wrong. But today, there is yet a kind of moral hysteria amongst Americans uh, who identify as Christians, at least. But the satanic, panic at, the satanic panic, at least as we knew it in the 80s, is largely over. And in its wake, the era of paranoia has left behind two disastrous consequences. The first is a kind of black and white fundamentalism. Um, which is a low, apprehensive view of art and creativity. 
um, the, the lingering petty and absurd culture wars over things like holiday greetings at the mall and Starbucks cups and absurd things like that. Um, you have uninformed and absolutely arbitrary boycotts. You know, Christmas trees are okay, but jack-o'-lanterns are not, despite the fact that they're both completely pagan in origin. Forget about it. And really, in our context, uh, that's less of an issue. That is a lingering consequence, but that's less of an issue. For us, it's the second consequence of the satanic panic, uh, which is exasperated with a history of paranoia. The pendulum swings well beyond thoughtful discernment and into outright and often deliberate obliviousness. And so the idea is that we no longer see the devil behind every bush and in every shadow. We just don't see him at all. We're more familiar with the worldview of something like the famously post-Christian liturgist podcast in which the devil isn't an actual personified being at all, nor is God for that matter, in their view, but essentially good and bad vibes, respectively, in everyone and in everything. Um, and really, this kind of frustrating either-or, the lingering fundamentalism or the ambiguous nothing, has been a recurring motif throughout this series, but it actually bears repeating because though there is certainly a nuanced and complicated way in which we should learn to understand this very real, very personified being called the devil and the things that he does and the things that he does not do, that understanding does not end in dismissing the devil as a myth or a depersonified force, but it ends in arming ourselves and one another to go to battle with him, that he would not gain any foothold in the lives of disciples of Jesus. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, like a, a hefty bulk of the entire New Testament, Ephesians is a letter drafted by one apprentice of Jesus called Paul. Um, this letter is written to a church in a city called Ephesus. You guys ready to get to it? You all right? Feeling full and all that? Great. Um, let's read from Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. More on that in just a second. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." Now, again, here we have Paul. He's writing a letter to a church, a church that's not really unlike this one in that it was made up of men and women who are doing their best to apprentice Jesus. But in this particular excerpt of said letter, Paul has begun to juxtapose right living against wrong living. And he uses this term Gentile. Now, in context, it's not to describe any non-Jewish person. It's more like uh, the equally outdated term pagan, which simply means someone who does not claim belief in the one true. God. Another way of putting it would be, Paul is essentially saying, do not live like those who do not know nor follow Jesus at all. And it makes perfect sense for Paul to invoke this dichotomy. Uh, the city to which he writes was a largely pagan culture. Ephesus was home to Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality. So people all over the ancient world would visit the temple of Aphrodite to worship by having sex with temple prostitutes. And like any church, the one in Ephesus felt this inevitable pull from the surrounding culture, sink into life as we know it. Be like everyone else. This is the world around you. Just live in and with it. And Paul is reminding this church, don't be like them. 
They do not know the truth. There is a futility in their thinking. They have no moral compass. And this results in a kind of cruel cycle, according to Paul. No truth in thinking leads to what the Bible calls sin or missing the mark of God's ideal, which creates a kind of separation, a relational severance from God, which in turn darkens one's understanding of reality and of the world around us and how it actually works. And of course, we don't ordinarily use that kind of language today. It sounds terribly archaic to us, but the idea is one that we can understand. Haven't we all known that person or people who so persist in a victim mentality or in their arrested development or in their mother or father wounds, or they shut people out. They can't deal with their own shortcomings, so they project them onto everyone and everything else until they've become so hardened, stagnated in a way of thinking and living. They have become, in the language of Paul, darkened. And Paul is warning that this is a lifestyle torn from the truth, and it concludes in a devastating uh, conclusion. So don't be like them. He goes on in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Messiah and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being made corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." You have, Paul says, taken these old ideas and ways of life and set them aside that they might eventually atrophy and die. Your old paradigm for humanity, you've, you've peeled it away like a dingy outfit and you wear it no more. You have this new understanding of reality, a new method of humanity, and it cannot coexist with the old. Of course, uh, if you've been at it for even a short spell, you know well enough that this is something that happens again and again and again along the road of discipleship. One scholar I read this week said, basic conversion must be followed by daily conversion, meaning along the ever-changing landscape of your personhood, you are constantly finding in you things which are out of sync with the way of Jesus, and you find them and you put them to death one by one again and again and again. And each time, you are persistently building out the new self, a person more and more made over in the image of Jesus, freed up to experience what Jesus called life and life to the fullest. But there's more. Look down at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all mem members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And listen, do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the shift from falsehood to anger may seem like an abrupt one. Suddenly, Paul's out of nowhere talking about angry, being angry and not letting the sun go down, but there's actually something profound going on here. Paul is recognizing that our ongoing battle with all that is untrue entails the concentrated effort of identifying lies, meaning every single day on the road of discipleship, you are going, wait, this is the truth, this is not and doing it again and again and again. And Paul also realizes that our emotional dispositions create in us a kind of vulnerability, and that's inevitable. We often feel at the mercy of our emotions. At least I know I do. I'm a deeply emotional person, apparently. Just ask my wife, Abby. 
A while back, we went through the series um, uh, Discovering Your Identity and Calling, in which we use this ancient tool of spiritual formation called the Enneagram in our journey to better understand each of our own unique brokenness, what is often called the shadow side in spiritual formation literature or the false self. And part of my shadow side, and often the shadow side of other Enneagram fours like me, is a wild oscillation of emotions. <laughs> One writer I listened to this week put it like this. I'm happy most of the time, but sometimes in a three-month period, I'm just sad for a few days. And I don't know why. I'm just sad. And sometimes in a three-month period, I'm kind of over the top. And there's no hyperbole in this. What I experienced in a three-month period, fours on the Enneagram, experience in terms of emotions and moods, probably 10 times in an hour. And I mention this because... <laughs> I am painfully aware of the way in which my roiling emotions can steward in me a likelihood to sin. My therapist told me um, recently, he's like, you know what? You will likely always be someone who experiences what to others is a wild and rapid roller coaster of emotions, but you can become the type of person less likely to sin as a result. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He wants us to understand that there are dimensions of life that create a kind of stepladder the devil and his forces of darkness use to climb into our thinking and our feeling and our actions. It doesn't matter if you're as emotional as me or as anyone else, what number you are on the Enneagram or anything like that. We are all vulnerable in our changing feelings. And as an apprentice of Jesus, Paul says, you have to see this. Don't give the devil a foothold. Let's keep reading through to the end. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Messiah Jesus, God forgave you. Now, as usual, this is a tremendously dense passage, but let's hone in on a few things before we end tonight. There's a kind of pattern going on here. Paul broaches the topic of anger, and then he talks about stealing, and then suddenly unwholesome talk, which can seem sort of arbitrary or random, but he's actually getting at three important points. What we experience in our hearts, what we do with our hands, and what we say outwardly with our mouths. All of these are potential footholds that the devil and his minions or whatever you want to call them can and will exploit if we let them. Anger, which is an often privately nurtured emotional disposition, is a powerful agent of corruption. You know this from experience. What begins as maybe a legitimate and reasonable frustration can become a seething animosity out of which flows hatred or self-pity or bitterness or resentment or passive aggression or sarcasm or unkindness. And the list just goes on and on and on. Or the things that you say. As innocuous as it may seem at the time, um, I had an interesting conversation with our friend Chad Johnson, who was teaching here last Sunday after the gathering. Uh, if you were here, there was this funny and somewhat jarring moment at the end of Chad's sermon in which he let slip a certain four-letter word that we don't ordinarily say in a prayer. It was in a prayer. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I I'm not personally a fan of the swear words. I don't use them myself. I haven't. 
uh, in my life. I find the notion of like the cussing Christian problematic at best, but there's obviously a conversation there. I'm not mortified by it. I'm not offended by it, honestly. I'm just not into it personally or theologically. So Chad, having been a friend of mine for many, many years, knew this, and he made a point to take me aside afterward and apologize to me after his teaching, and he may disagree with me theologically on the nuances of that, but we laughed. I told it him that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really a huge deal. But then Chad actually said something really interesting. He told me that the fact that he would accidentally say such a thing in this context, knowing me, was evidence of the fact that he was not being as thoughtful about the way that he talks as he would like to be. So it's interesting because Chad and I may disagree on the specific nuances of this theological conversation around Christians and swear words. Maybe, I'm not really sure. But we both agree that the, one, the way one talks can easily become a foothold for the devil. And not necessarily because of like one swears or something like that, but because we become careless with the things that we say. And of course, this applies to much bigger, much more dire things than which words get censored on you know, broadcast television. How many of you know friends or are the type of person yourself who is often so sarcastic and so unserious that sincerity becomes all but totally natural and no one ever says anything meaningful or kind ever again? Or the gossip who can't carry on conversation if there's no one to pick apart or to critique or to mock in their absence? And most of us, I'm sure, would agree that being angry all the time or being, being endlessly sarcastic or gossipy is a bad idea. We know that. But what we often overlook is that these spaces in our lives create doorways through which the enemy of the soul enters. And in that vulnerable place, he can twist us out of shape, break us down, and warp us away from God. And we, as disciples of Jesus, who have God's Spirit alive in us, we can actually, in the language of tonight's text, grieve the Spirit of God by what we allow in. We can create fractures, fissures in our intimacy with God. Like any other relationship, it suffers under the duress of that which contaminates and corrupts us. And Paul repeats those patterns when he mentions bitterness and rage, which is that which infests the heart, then slander and malice, that which afflicts the speech, and brawling, that which leads our hands to do evil and violence. And navigating this conflict is going to be a complicated thing, so Paul ends by reminding us to be kind and compassionate to one another because it's going to get messy as we live in the family of God. Forgive one another, he says. After all, God has forgiven us, so we ought to forgive one another. It's part of the whole thing that we're doing here, okay? When you're reading all that, it makes enough sense, I think. Um, it's not terribly complicated, but the question, I think, is why conclude the devil portion of this series here and on this text? And the reason is because Paul is touching on something that reverberates throughout the last few weeks together. Do not give the devil a foothold there are more than a few misunderstandings and misconceptions about the devil. That much is obvious. So for weeks, we've been talking about a spectrum of belief or lack thereof in what we call the spiritual realm. Here is a small infographic, as, as it were. On one pole, you have outright disbelief. There is no spiritual realm, no supernatural dimension to reality. 
a little further in, you have an acknowledgement of some kind of spiritual dimension to reality, but it isn't personal. It isn't an actual personal entity. Maybe it's more like a force or a vibe or a negative energy in the universe. This view, I would argue, is tremendously popular amongst the spiritual but not religious crowd um, in the Pacific Northwest. There's a huge population of that type, and it's especially popular with the oh-so-enlightened former Christian bloggers and podcasters, obviously. And it is, I would argue, an inconsistent crock. Now, just right of the center, you have belief in an actual personal entity called the devil, at least in theory, but not in practice meaning that belief is mostly inconsequential in day-to-day living. This is, I suspect, more popular amongst modern disciples of Jesus, especially those under 30, um, which is like, yeah, I believe on paper in the spiritual realm, in angels and demons and the devil, I guess, but what difference does it make really? And then beyond that, you tip into the satanic panic hysteria of the 70s and 80s in which the devil is in every rock song, every R-rated movie, every Harry Potter novel for some reason, and jack-o'-lantern, whatever it might be. And maybe that seems silly to some of us, but trust me, it is alive and well today and continues to survive. It is made manifest in a baseline suspicion of the arts. Um, and the sort of need to create Christian substitutes for art, uh, Christian schools, Christian radio stations, Christian brands and auto shops. And, and not all of that is bad per se. I don't know about auto shops, whatever, but, um, but it is sometimes indicative of a kind of fear of culture that somehow all that is not overtly Christianized is bad by default, and that's simply not true and not the worldview of Jesus. But if this spectrum represents a popularity of belief or lack thereof in the spiritual realm, I would argue that typically theory does not correspond with practice, meaning where we fit on this spectrum in terms of what we believe is often very different than where we fit on this spectrum in terms of how we live So, for example, many who would articulate a worldview that would put them on the right side of the spectrum actually live as though they belong on the left. And our ambition as apprentices of Jesus is always to adopt the worldview of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus, meaning we believe what he believed, we put his teachings into practice, we live the way that he lived, enabled by the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God. And that, in theory, would put us here in the middle in which belief in a real, personal, autonomous spiritual being and beings is a given. That is the worldview of Jesus and the scriptures. When we see evil, we recognize that it is either directly or indirectly connected to evil in the spiritual realm. And we live differently as a result. See, this view, unlike the left side of the spectrum, is congruent with the worldview of Jesus and the authors of scripture. But unlike the right side of the spectrum, this view is more nuanced than to look for the devil himself in every shadow and every aspect of culture. Our world is complicated. It's broken. It's been out of shape. God is here. God is involved in the minutia of our lives, but so are we. And we often don't want what God wants and vice versa. And the same is true of spiritual beings, angels and demons. And so life in the world as we know it becomes a kind of, becomes a kind of moral tug of war on the inside and the out. If we hope to become people of this nuanced middle, then Paul's words are of utmost importance for us this evening. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, what does that mean exactly? Now, please, please listen to me on this. The devil 
and the forces under his authority will not coerce you to do anything by force. They can't. Instead, they will look for windows of influence in your life, slither inside, and lead you astray with lies. So the devil can't, for example, force you to objectify another human, to reduce them to fodder for fantasy rather than someone made in the image of God. But they will exploit your thought patterns. Pay attention to what you watch, to the vulnerability that you feel when you're sad or lonely and creep in and take a foothold. Where the spiritual forces of darkness can't force you to have another drink and then another and then another, but they can take advantage of the company that you keep and your moods and your routines. Probably none of us make conscious agreements with the devil's kingdom, but we do give it a kind of permission with our habits and the things that we say and the thought patterns that we turn over and replay in our minds. And the tricky thing is that it won't look the same for everyone. So there's no black and white moral ground that we can easily take, no blanket statements that we can easily apply, at least not in the broad sense. Here's an easy example. Um, I don't drink alcohol personally. It's just a personal conviction. Don't freak out thing. I'm straight edge, all that. I have no issue with those of you who enjoy the occasional glass of wine or chalice of beer. What You told me the correct thing. What is it? Growler, 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 chalice. Chalice sounds way cool. You should try it in that. Maybe you'd like it more. Whatever it is. Um, for me personally, I'm not interested, never have been. So I can go to any bar with any group of people and no one will ever convince me to have a drink. I have great friends for many years who are like, I'm going to get you to try this beer. No, they won't. They won't ever. And my, so my risk of lapsing into drunkenness is very, very low. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm somehow foolishly assuming I will never fall in this area. I could never sin. I just mean that knowing myself that this is currently in my life a very low risk for me personally. But knowing the way that my emotional state oscillates, the way that if I begin to feel lonely or discouraged, and if I allow myself to retreat into the dark recesses of my mind, and unchecked, I will, I will then spill headlong into self-loathing and despair or worse than that. And these things belong to the devil, not to God. So one person learns to avoid situations in which they know that they might have trouble declining the third or fourth or fifth drink or whatever it is. And another person, that's told, they'll, they'll never be tempted in that way, or at least not right now where they're at. So they learn to cut off certain thought patterns with prayer and accountability and worship community, something that lifts their soul rather than drags it down, different from person to person. So the question that you have to ask is, where are your weaknesses? Can you go shopping without feeling the pull to materialism and excess? Or do you need discernment and discipline and at times abstinence in that area? Can you watch that Netflix series without objectifying the women and men on screen? Or will you lust after them? Maybe you don't feel tempted to party or to sleep around or something like that, but you do spend hours every day and week on Instagram scrolling through an endless drip feed of meaninglessness, comparing yourself to other people and other people to other people. And the idea of deleting that app terrifies you. 
Maybe you don't feel tempted to look at porn right now when you're all alone, but you do feel that draw to spend all your money on yourself rather than sacrificing your excess for the sake of generosity. And the temptation for many of us is to focus on the areas in which we experience some sense of security (laughs) rather than where we are weak and vulnerable. So I can recline, sit back in my chair and smile to myself saying, man, I won't ever get drunk. I don't use filthy language. I don't look at Instagram. Look at me, man. I've got it together. But what do I think about when I'm alone? And how do I treat my wife when I'm upset? And, and what steps am I taking to take control of my thought patterns and the way that I treat myself and other people made in God's image? So you don't watch violent movies personally? Neat. How do you spend your money? And you don't look at porn where you're at in your life right now? That's awesome. How much time do you spend on Instagram? And you don't let your kids watch CD television shows? Okay. Were their clothes sewn together by slaves? Do not give the devil a foothold. And this is really hard because all of us are bent and broken and corrupted by an entangling darkness out there in the world and in here as well. So, and please listen to me, this means that you are not the best judge of your own weaknesses. You can identify and acknowledge your own weaknesses from time to time. It's not impossible. It happens. But given your brokenness, you are largely quite bad at it. I am quite bad at it. We have blind spots. Some of them are subconscious, and some of them are decidedly less so. I remember when that whole piracy thing was huge a decade or so ago. Um, I used to, you know, I worked in the music industry, so I had a bone to pick and all that. But I used to talk to disciples of Jesus who would just actively and knowingly steal all kinds of stuff through illegal downloading. And I'd say, dude, you know that you're stealing that, right? There's actually no debate or dispute about it. It's just actively stealing. And they'd say things like, well, yeah, you know, but I don't feel convicted. Everybody does it. And I'd say, so? (laughs) What the heck? So? And still, to this day, I hear the same type of things. Uh, One easy example is like from boyfriends and girlfriends sleeping together or engaged couples who are living together and sleeping together or people who are getting high, smoking pot, who claim to follow Jesus, whatever it might be. The kinds of broken things that have been normalized in a broken culture but have no place in the life of one who apprentices Jesus. When you lie at work to get ahead or to get around something or when you cheat at school or when you drag someone through the dirt when they aren't around or when you buy stuff that you don't need, or when you hoard your own resources, or use cutting sarcastic words to make someone else feel bad, or when you're passive-aggressive online or in a group text thread, you know the type, um, and you think, what, well, what's the big deal? You know, I don't feel convicted about it. It's ordinary. It's routine. Everyone does that kind of stuff, and when you concede to the what's the big deal, I'm the exception to the rule mentality, you provide for the devil a welcoming stepladder into your soul. It's really that serious. And this means that in order to avoid providing a foothold for the devil, we must defer to sources beyond ourselves in order to spot our own weaknesses because you cannot do it by yourself. No matter how wise, how trustworthy, how mature you imagine yourself to be, you are fallible. Your sound judgment wanes from time to time. 
you screw up. And so I would argue we are all constantly appealing to three primary outside sources. The first is, of course, the scriptures. That's an easy one. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are, upon the teachings of Jesus himself, under the authority of what the scriptures, upon the study and inspection, actually teach. And yes, that can be, on occasion, frustratingly ambiguous, I know. And on others, it's honestly perfectly clear. Things like don't steal, don't be unkind, don't be materialistic, don't sleep with your boyfriends and girlfriends. Things like this are no-brainers, easily represented from cover to cover in the Scriptures. So that's the first source. The second source is the Spirit of God. And I should point out that God's Spirit will never contradict the Scriptures. It will never give you a kind of one-time permission that everyone else gets a forbiddance on in the Scriptures. But God's Spirit can and will lead you into a deeper understanding of what the Scriptures teach and will convict us when we veer from the truth. And this can honestly be as simple as asking God outright, is it okay for me to do this? And if you ever get to a point in your life, and this is me speaking absolutely from experience, where you're like, man, I should just ask, oh, crap, I don't want to. That's, you know, an indication. It's like, man, forget it. I already know, you know. Um, God's Spirit knows you better than you know yourself, and we believe He will talk to you when you ask. It's just a matter of learning to hear Him well. The other night, um, I was praying with my son. I mean, he's four, about to turn five in a couple days. I was trying to teach him. I've been trying to teach him what it means to do listening prayer in, you know, a four-year-old kind of way. So don't freak out. It's not getting crazy or cultish or anything like that. And uh, so at night, I'll say, like, hey, I'm going to listen to God and see if he has anything that he wants to tell you. And he gets real excited. And I usually listen. I usually have something to say to him. And he always says very ordinary, very very um, understandable questions. How come I can't hear it? And I just say things like, you will. You just have to learn. He talks differently. You have to learn how to hear it. And really, that's a matter of in the realm of conviction, just asking God, is it okay for me to do this? And then learning to hear him the way that he speaks to you. Finally, the third source that we appeal to is the community of God's people all around you. And this absolutely grates against the popular, don't let anyone tell you who you can and can't be psychobabble of the world around us. But like it or not, uh, disciples of Jesus for more than 2,000 years now have been consistently in agreement that in order to practice the way of Jesus, we need each other. You need trustworthy people in your life who have been, great, who have been given gracious permission to speak into your life. The kind of people who love you enough to sit down with you, unencumbered by anger or pettiness or anything like that, and say, listen, I love you. I see this in your life. It isn't right. This could be a close friend who follows Jesus. It could be someone in your family that's trustworthy, that you feel safe and comfortable with. It could be your pastors or mentors or a counselor that follows Jesus. It could be people in your Van City community. Not always, but it can be. And don't, please don't misunderstand me. The idea is never <laughs> that if you follow Jesus, you have license to point out any, anyone and everyone's wrongdoing as far as you see it. That would be the devil's work, just to be clear about that. But the idea is that with trust and relational equity, we learn to love one another even when that involves asking someone else to spot the devil's foothold in your life. And yes, other people are fallible as well. But if every single person in your community 
or in your family that follows Jesus is telling you, hey, listen, I see you going, heading down this path. It's bad news. We want better for you. We want better for your family. Then you have to ask yourself, dang, am I missing something? Why am I the only one who doesn't see this? And you don't have to simply accept any critique as being from the mouth of God, but we are, I hope, learning to not only value, but to seek out the insight of other disciples of Jesus. To say, man, help me walk the road of discipleship well. Am I giving the devil a foothold? Because I don't always see it myself. I recognize that, and I want the insight of people who care about me, who love me enough to help me walk the road of discipleship well. And the most effective means of canceling the enemy's work in our lives is to stifle his influence long before it has time to generate or gestate in our souls. Do not give the devil a foothold. This week, you'll get together with your Van City community or with a few friends if you're not in a community yet or listening to this podcast elsewhere, and you'll go to practicingtheway.org slash fighting. Sounds so dramatic. And the practice is a really simple one. You are asking yourself a crucial question. It's not everyone free for all telling you stuff. You're asking yourself a crucial question. Am I giving the devil a foothold in my life, my mind, my body? And you are asking because we want to live as those who are aware of the devil's schemes so that as he works to coil around the tree of our thoughts and habits, so to speak, we are already sawing off its branches. So that as disciples of Jesus, we are squandering the devil's offensive before he can successfully launch the attack. Learning to live not as those in fear of the devil in anything and everything out there in the world, but also not as those arrogant enough to imagine him as little more than negative energy in the universe. The devil and his kingdom are real. Evidence of their work is all around us in the complicated brokenness of our world. Do not give the devil a foothold. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.